This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of the National Model Railroad Association. By setting standards and recommended practices for all scales, we make it even more fun. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. This is the Model Railroad podcast that gets you to think outside the toolbox. Our two guests today address the future of the hobby. Both think it's going to be vastly different in a few short years. Later in the show, we'll meet Russ Reinberg, publisher of the always anticipated Fine Scale Annuals. He'll explain why he switched from magazines to books as a way to ride out the turbulent waters of modern day publishing. First, we have Mike Kogel, managing editor of O Scale Trains Magazine, who's back with a provocative follow up to a couple of my earlier interviews. Listen, and all will be explained. Here's Trevor. When Jim and I started the Model Railway Show, one of our goals was to stimulate discussion about various issues facing the hobby. What we most like about doing this in a podcasting format is we get to present to you a broad range of opinions in the voices of those who hold them. One of the big issues facing model railroading is the graying of the hobby, and we've presented guests with various ideas to address this. Schoolteacher Mike Hamer offered suggestions on how to get young people involved, while modeler Peter Cunningham argued that we should be focusing our efforts on attracting those in their 30s and 40s who have more disposable income and a more domestic-focused lifestyle. My guest today has another idea. Mike Kogel is the editor of O-Scale Trains magazine, and he joined us on Episode 6 to talk about his book, Detailing Track. I'm happy to say he's also a regular listener to the Model Railway Show. Having heard some of our interviews discussing the graying of the hobby, Mike's thought is this. Stop worrying about it, because it's not the real problem. Mike has written an opinion piece called When I'm Old and Gray, which he has published on his personal website. We'll have a link to the piece on our website, so be sure to give it a read. But Mike joins us today to give us his perspective on this issue. Mike, welcome back to the Model Railway Show. Thank you, Trevor. Good to be back. Let's start with your assertion that the aging hobby isn't the real problem. Why do you believe we're barking up the wrong tree here? Well, for one thing, modelers have been getting older since day one, yet we have a greater selection and means to practice the hobby than ever before. So I really don't think that our focus on aging modelers is the place to be looking at. I guess that's a combination of we have more product than ever before, and we also seem to have a lot more disposable income than people in the past did. Yes, correct. You argue that we need to go beyond trying to attract people to the hobby and and actually redefine what the hobby is to make it more relevant in terms of today. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we need to consider the fact that trains, and I'm talking prototype trains, are really not a big part of people's lives anymore. You can go a long, long time without seeing a real train or even hearing one. Lots of communities today that used to have rail service no longer do, and so trains have uh, become almost invisible in the minds of the general public. That's a good point. I'm just thinking that if you go back 60 years or so, you had lots of popular songs even that involved a train theme, and you just don't hear today's pop stars recording that type of thing anymore either. No, that's very true, yes. So what do we do to make it more relevant in terms of today? Well, I think we have to start thinking like teachers and educators rather than modelers when it comes to presenting the hobby to the general public. The emphasis on teenagers, for example, 
we have to understand that today's teenagers, and I realize I'm being general here and perhaps unfair, but today's teenagers are very different than we were as teenagers. They're much more media savvy. They're connected like we could only dream about being connected through cell phones and text messaging and the internet and so forth. That stuff was science fiction when I was a teenager. And we have to, I think we have to go where they are and approach them on their terms rather than trying to get them interested on our terms. Today's teenagers are very used to doing things in an interactive fashion, whether it's video gaming or online communications with their friends through Twitter or Facebook or whatever. And I guess we need to look at different ways to engage them with the hobby. And a lot of those ways have to be more interactive. Yes, I would agree completely. I know that there are a lot of modelers who have Facebook pages and fan pages and whatnot, or modelers who are using Twitter and YouTube and all these digital channels. And that's terrific, and we really should exploit them for all they're worth, but we have to think smart when we do it. I've seen far too many videos of somebody's layout where there's nothing more than a train running through the scene. You really have no background information about what this is supposed to be about. There's no titles, for instance. There's no narration. There may be a musical soundtrack of some kind, but more often than not, it's more annoying than helpful, in my view. That's just one example. So we need to do better at telling the story then? Yes, exactly. I think so. I think we need to think like storytellers, like teachers, like educators, instead of model railroaders. One of the places where you see a huge opportunity for improvement in that regard is how we present the hobby to the general public at train shows. Obviously, that's where uh, if people aren't seeing trains in their real lives, then the public train show is where a lot of people who aren't in the hobby are going to be exposed to what the hobby about at all levels, whether it's modeling or rail fanning or whatever. What sort of opportunities do you see for improvement in how we tell the story at train shows? What can we do better here? I think we need to make train shows more of an immersive experience. Let me liken it to going to a theme park of any kind. And we'll pick on Disney World or Disney anything for this matter. When you go to a Disney park, you're immersed in the world of Disney from the minute you walk through the gates until you walk back out again. And in some cases, even before you walk through the gates, you start getting immersed in that world or that experience. Most of the train shows that you and I attend, Trevor, and the majority of them, they're focused on the modelers. They're there to sell product. We go in, we talk the lingo, we talk the jargon amongst ourselves, and you've got narrow aisles, crowded, not a lot of fun. You know, look at that from the point of view of somebody who's never been in the hobby before, has no idea what it's all about. They walk into this giant convention center-sized space, and what do they see? Just mass confusion with no rhyme or reason to it whatsoever. I think we could do much better. Looking at it from their point of view, I think we could do tremendously better. That's certainly a good point. I know I've had the opportunity to exhibit at a couple of public events that weren't actually train shows. One example is here in Toronto, every spring there's something called Doors Open Toronto, which is a thing for architecture enthusiasts and people who want to know about the buildings in the city. And it's a wide open event where one of the participants is the Roundhouse, and there's a microbrewery in the Roundhouse that invites a couple of area 
model railway clubs and groups to come in and do a little exhibit in one of the rooms that they use for corporate events and things like that. And it's a very different crowd than what you get at a train show because most of the people who are there are not model railway enthusiasts. And there's a different energy in the room because there's very few exhibits, lots of space, lots of interaction and lots of other things going on at the same time. And there just happens to also be some really interesting model railroading on display. That's the sort of thing you're getting at, I think, is taking it out of that closeted environment of, well, this is almost like a private members club where the language is exclusively trains and bring more into it and show people how this can be an interesting way to spend your free time. Yes, absolutely. I think one thing that we're really lacking is that opportunity to get your hands dirty with the hobby. A club, for example, could have an open house type weekend where you could come in and get some experience with building a small module or laying some track or trying out some scenery techniques and things of that kind in a low stress, low key environment without a real heavy sales pitch to join the club or to get into the hobby. But you know, come in, have an opportunity, see what it's all about, try your hand at it, uh, this or that aspect, learn, you know, what all is involved here and the type of commitment required and et cetera and so forth. You know, I'll grant there may be some clubs who have been doing that very thing for a long, long time, but it's just not promoted the way it could be, I think. So one of the challenges then if clubs are doing this is to find new ways to get the word out and maybe move beyond putting flyers in their local hobby shop because there you're already preaching to the converted. In a sense, yeah. Yeah. It sounds a lot like you're talking about moving from exhibiting to doing a better job of marketing the hobby. And one thing that you mentioned in your opinion piece is making it relevant in terms of lifelong learning and the skills that we learn in the hobby and that we can use in other aspects of our lives. Like if you can build bench work, you can also do home repairs and other things like that. Can you expand on that a little bit? What's the value there and how do we maybe incorporate that into a model railway exhibit? Well, I think today we have to understand that people are more time stressed than ever before in history. Our work consumes much more of our time than perhaps our parents or grandparents' generation did. And it never ends in a 24-7 connected world that we live in nowadays, if you're in the professions at all. We also have to understand, and we take this for granted as modelers, but this hobby requires a tremendous commitment, not only in terms of time, but in terms of space, resources, and it asks a lot when you get into it at the level that you and I are. Now, we take this for granted because we've seen that there are good things that can come from this, things that add to our lives and things that we enjoy immensely. But if trains are invisible to the general public, then how are we going to communicate those joys and those benefits to people that the hobby can bring to them? I think one way we do this is we show them what this hobby can bring to their lives rather than always focused on building layout and this, that, and the other. We forget what a huge commitment that this hobby can take out of our lives. And people are not willing to do that these days. They're very cautious. They're very selective of what they're going to invest their lives in, simply because there's so many demands on people's lives now. I suppose if they see the return on the investment, they're quite willing to invest a lot, though, in terms of their commitment. I and mean, we see that in other things, like if you know, someone who's 
passionate about golfing will go and take lessons to improve their score. Someone who is interested in building furniture or painting will go and take lessons from professionals or go and do retreats to do that sort of thing. I guess that's the same sort of thing that if we can show that there's real reward to this, people will get engaged and do that sort of thing. Yes. Start thinking about the skill set that the typical modeler acquires over, say, a decade or so in the hobby. You touch on historical research, you touch on matters of art and design, carpentry, electronics, model building, hand skills, craft skills, design skills, painting. The list goes on and on and on and on. And when we approach it from the point of look at what the hobby can bring into your lives as a means of self-development, personal improvement, expanding your image of yourself. You know, I discovered some art skills in doing scenery that I didn't know I ever had, and it's really fun. I really enjoy this. Would like to explore it more. Or I learned how to solder, which was the black arts to a lot of people. I learned how to build things in brass or styrene or whatever. I found that I had some design skills with planning the layout and so forth and so on. I think when we emphasize those things and what they can bring to our lives, as you said, outside the hobby, then I think we have a shot at attracting people's attention. It's all very good ideas and a lot to think about. Mike, thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show today. You're welcome, Trevor. My pleasure. O-Scale Trains editor Mike Kogel joined us with his take on how to make the hobby relevant to more people in a world where trains have faded from the public consciousness. I'm sure we'll continue to explore this important topic in future episodes. Thanks, guys. The future of model railroading is a topic that promises to be self-continuing. If you have an opinion or a suggestion to offer, be sure to contact us here at the show. In addition to finding us, you'll find all sorts of interesting links relating to our guests on our website, themodelrailwayshow.com. And while you're visiting the site, also check out the latest show news from Trevor and our growing selection of celebrity workbench photos in our Flickr gallery. Next on the show, in the past decade or so, we've seen a number of magazines disappear from hobby shop shelves. One of those was Fine Scale Railroader. However, the publisher, Russ Reinberg, didn't simply fold his tent. He injected new life into his publishing business by creating the Fine Scale Annuals, a trifecta of high-quality, soft-cover books that present in stunning pictures and sophisticated design some truly inspiring model building. Russ calls himself a railroad modeler, not a model railroader, and has strong opinions about the state of the hobby and where we're headed. To tell us more, he joins Jim now. There are two ways you may have heard of Russ Reinberg, either as a world-class jazz clarinetist or a railroad modeler and softbound book publisher. Google Westlake and you'll find your way to Westlake Records, where you'll be able to hear and purchase Russ's sterling work on his albums Blue, Scarlet, and Wistful. Google Westlake and you'll also find your way to Westlake Publishing former home of Fine Scale Railroader magazine, and currently home to three superb annuals, the Logging, Mining, and Industrial Annual, the Narrow Gauge Annual, and the Modeler's Annual. Modelers dedicated to the craft of building fine models anxiously await each release for the inspiration it provides. These annuals continue and build upon the high reputation achieved by Fine Scale Railroader magazine. As we head into our chat with Russ Reinberg, we again remind you to check the links in our episode guide to learn more about his dual talents. 
Russ, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Hey, Jim, how you doing? Hey, we're just doing excellent here, and we're glad to have you on. And we're going to keep some time aside later in our chat to talk about your excellent music. But first, when I initially approached you about appearing on the Model Railway Show, you mentioned that you've spent decades analyzing the hobby, the industry, and your own part in them, and that this is one reason you're still around while a number of other publishers have disappeared. You obviously saw some big changes coming, so why don't you tell us what happened in your words? Well, basically, the economy and culture and computers and the way we interact socially, all of that stuff combined to wipe out the idea that it's cool to work with your hands. Like, how many kids do you know who have an interest in building a layout? At the same time, we also spend more time working and commuting than we used to. We go to Junior's Little League game, and all that leaves less time for creative pursuits. Also... The biggest generation of hobbyists got old, and the rest of us are getting old. And when you combine health problems and burnout, limited discretionary income, all that stuff combines to kill hobby activity. The result was that over the last five years, we have only 50% of the hobby shops remaining that we did five years ago. Manufacturers start watching their sales drops. Advertising goes down. Everything's a mess. And by about 2000, it doomed the full-time second-tier publishers. Mainline Modeler, for example? Mainline is a perfect example, yeah. And I saw the signs happening. The other guys didn't. I phased into books, and I'm still in business. The rest of the guys, except for one, are belly up. But at this point, no matter what you or I might do, in 10 to 20 years, our hobby is going to be vastly smaller than it is today. Does this bother you? Yeah, it bothers me a lot. How so? I mean, I believe uh, your attitude may be one of, as long as I can still produce a quality model 15 years from now, does it matter what's happening out and around? Uh, Well, there are two aspects to, to answer that question. The first is, how does it affect me personally as a hobbyist? As a hobbyist, I could care less. I'm interested in only a small group of people, people who are modeling at a very high level, and I want to model at that level if I can. So in that sense, if I only know 15 people, but they're all inspirational, I'm fine. As a businessman, as a guy who makes his living in this hobby, it's deadly to me. You might have to fall back on your music. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's doing even worse, I might add. (laughs) The same things that are affecting the hobby are affecting the music business. Really? Of course. Only worse. Downloading. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about that in a moment. You've described your approach to the hobby as, and I'm, I'm quoting here, perhaps a little controversial. In what ways, Russ, do you, do you feel you're annoying some people in the hobby or giving their comfort levels a good shake? And if so, is that something you set out to do on purpose, or has it just happened that way? Well, the answer is yes and no. I didn't deliberately go out to, uh, to make people uncomfortable, but I, I guess I have, and I'm glad I did. It started out about 20 years ago. Large-scale railroading was emerging, and I wanted to start a magazine about it. And I realized that if I wanted to keep large-scale viable, the hobby industry had to make accurate models where the scale of the trains and the accuracy matched the gauge of the track, because toys don't last in our hobby. And as you know, that accuracy has dominated every scale. And that way, if you go accurate, you're going to attract not only the scale guys, but you'll also get the toy guys. So I had a meeting about it, and I, I publicized it in my magazine. And Lee Riley at Bachman and Bing Chang over at AccuCraft and a couple of overseas live steam locomotive manufacturers listened to what I was saying and put 1 to 20 on the map. Some of my subscribers just went ballistic, and the advertisers dropped out, and I became a pariah to about half the hobby. But ultimately, LGB, which was the big outfit at that time, went broke, just as I had predicted, and 1 to 20 scale narrow gauge took over and managed to keep the large-scale hobby alive. 
In fact, it brought it indoors, too. People model in 1 to 20 scale as mantelpiece models. So the focus on accuracy and fine modeling in all scales is what I do now, and that continues to annoy a lot of people in the hobby. In some cases, just high-quality modeling intimidates them, and that, to me, makes about as much sense as a guy who says, hey, you know, the pretty girls in Playboy are intimidating, so I'm only going to look at pictures of ugly girls. <laughs> you know, where does that come from? <laughs> so I predict that most of those guys are going to be gone in a few years. I think more of those remaining will end up being modelers. I think that's just inevitable, the way things evolve. I think we're going to be very much like ship and plane and car and military modelers down the road, where some guys will still focus on flying or racing or operation, but I think more will approach the hobby as three-dimensional art. All right, uh, which I think leads into this question. You've called yourself a railroad modeler as opposed to a model railroader. I get the difference. Some might not. So can you elaborate for us? I'd say that a model railroader is a guy whose focus is on a layout. He wants to run model trains, and he builds models either out of necessity or as a secondary interest as a prop. A railroad modeler is a guy who is a modeler first, chooses railroad as his canvas, and maybe instead of model ships, for example. If he has a layout, it's usually small, and it's usually not his main focus. Who's buying your publications now? Is it railroad modelers or model railroaders? I'd say right now it's probably the model-oriented model railroaders and modelers all over the world. Is the hobby becoming diminished as an art form or a craft with so much ready to run right now? You, you mentioned that somewhere down the road, all of these manufacturers are liable to find themselves in trouble. But your annuals, for example, embrace almost total scratch building as opposed to components building. Craftsmanship and research, whether by necessity or choice, used to be a bigger part of the hobby than now. Uh, today's typical hobbyist is less knowledgeable and less sophisticated than a guy 30 years ago. My books focus on scratch building for a different reason. I want each book to be timeless. I want it to be as valuable in 20 years as it is today. And you can't have that if you rely on articles that deal with commercial products that might disappear in six months. Tell us about your latest publication, the Spring 11 uh, Logging, Mining, and Industrial Annual. Did I hear correctly? Is that still out there, or has it been sold oh, out? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It should be available for uh, about another 10, 11 months. And in this one, Mal Farrell wrote a, another one of his beautiful, profusely illustrated articles on the history of the Argent Lumber Company in Georgia and South Carolina. There are other articles about superb models and dioramas, and there's also a nice, beautifully photographed article on the muskrat ramble layout by Dan Pickard and John Hunter in Australia, which is now in Dave Revelia's museum in Florida. So my readers are going to see it in much more detail and far better photos than they may have seen it in the past. I'm a scenery lover. I just love that layout, by the way. Well, they did a superb job. Well, yeah, and y every time you look at it, you're seeing something else. Okay, in the time we've got, Russ, let's talk a bit about your music. You have your own group. You've performed at a number of jazz festivals with top musicians. You've played Carnegie Hall, numerous TV appearances, including The Tonight Show, and now your own indie label. I'd be interested in your thoughts on how music and model railroading fit together as art forms. Should we be surprised, for example, that so many modelers' bios so often include music or some other form of artistic expression? Well, it's really not surprising because both require the kind of personality that has a need to create. Other than that, of course, they're totally different things. One is audio and emotional, and the other one is visual and technical. So even though they're the same, they're also different. So the dual interests compete or complement? In my case, I build models only when I'm in the mood. 
But I'm always in the mood to play music. I'm not always in the mood to compose it. I'm always in the mood to play it. <laughs> Russ Reinberg, we're out of time, but thanks for being with us here today on the Model Railway Show. We'll remind our listeners to check out the links to Westlake Publishing and Westlake Music, uh, as well as finding back issues of Fine Scale Railroader. Russ, always good to have an iconoclast on the show. <laughs> thanks, Jim. <laughs> I guess that's what I am. I didn't set out to be, though. Do take care. We'll have you back sometime. Goodbye. Thanks, guys. You can find links to Russ's music, as well as to his books, by checking the link on our website, themodelrailwayshow.com. This show sure has been a kick in the gray matter. Let us know what you think. You can comment on our Facebook page or use the feedback form on our website. And if this is your first time listening, welcome aboard. Our website tells you how to subscribe to our podcast feed so you'll never miss an episode. Join us next time when the overriding topic will be taking layouts apart. Doug Harding will talk about building them that way, and legendary modeler Alan McClelland will talk to us about what happens when a famous layout is taken apart permanently. Thanks, of course, to the rest of our team. Chris Abbott for tech support, Otto Vondrack for web design, and our music director, Dave Woodhead. We're going to give David a break this time around and close out the show with music by my guest, Russ Reinberg, and his group, the Westlake All-Stars. This is Stratton with some barbecue from last year's CD, Spinach Blossom. Until next time, for Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show. 